You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. What a powerful passage of scripture. I'm going to pray as we dig into it a little bit together. Oh, by the way, hi, I'm Joel. (laughs) I'm one of the pastors here. And I get to share God's word with you today. I'm looking forward to it. Pray with me if you would. God in heaven, we come before you just thankful that you've given us these words that you've spoken to us. And now, God, we want to to know what you would have us do with them. So prepare our hearts. Make us tender and soft toward what you want to say to us today. And God, we pray that you wouldn't only allow us to receive these words, but that you would transform us by them. And we ask it for your glory and in Jesus' name, amen. So let's pretend that it's a presidential election year, shall we? You guys are like, no, let's not do that. (laughs) Let's not say we did. Uh, No, but seriously, let's do that for just a minute. I I know that oftentimes when uh, election time comes, we can feel like we're choosing between the lesser of two evils. I get that. But, but, but right now, let's just pretend that it's an election year. It's a, it's a presidential election year. And one day, your friend comes up to you and tells you that they just learned about the most amazing politician who's running for office. Okay? And, and, and at first, you're skeptical, of course, right? Because you probably should be. Um, but, but the more that they describe this person to you, the more excited you become because they tell you that this candidate would rule with justice, real justice and, and righteousness. And instead of being violent and oppressive, they would crush violent and oppressive people. Instead of taking advantage of the poor and the weak and the needy, they would have pity on them and defend their cause. In fact, that would describe the way that this politician would relate to all people. They would actually rule without partiality of any sort. And this political leader would cause people to flourish so much that all of creation would bud and blossom. Farms would have abundant crops and fruit and grain. Water would be available. It would be clean. It would be perfectly and evenly distributed. No more of those lead pipes or pollution or any of that stuff, nature would prosper so immensely that even the mountains and the hills would be described as thriving. Now, of course, if a politician could actually do all of these things, their glory would not just demand your vote, but your worship. In fact, all the rulers from every nation on earth would be compelled to come and bow down before this ruler at their feet. And of course, we know that this sort of politician doesn't exist. It would be impossible. Such is the case with living in a broken world and full of sinful people, including those who are social and political leaders. But what if there were someone who was like this? who is actually capable of making everything in God's good world work the way that it should, that it would thrive. I think it's pretty clear that if this person existed, 
they wouldn't be looking for your vote, <laughs> right? They wouldn't need it. Everyone everywhere would be flocking to this person and seeking them as the king and ruler of the whole earth. And this psalm portrays this ruler. It's the perfect king. Now this psalm, it's the prayers of Solomon who was a king and and who in some respects ruled in the way that this describes, but for the most part he failed to meet this idealized standard. Though he may have aspired to be this kind of king, this psalm ultimately portrays the Messiah, ultimately portrays Jesus. And we're looking at it today because it's commonly associated with the Christian holiday of Epiphany, which, as Nick described earlier in our service, it falls on January 6th, and it's this huge feast and festival in Western Christianity. We celebrate it as a manifestation of Jesus to the Gentiles in the story of the Magi. And you guys might have heard Nick say that earlier, and you're like, who are the Magi? What what does that mean? (laughs) They're more commonly known as the wise men, right? You've probably heard of them, or you've heard that song, we three kings of war, right? Uh, That's the Magi. And the Magi were basically pagan, non-Jews, who essentially worshipped the stars until a star led them to worship the king of the Jews, Jesus, when he was just a, a child. And in their story, we see how the gift of God's good news is for all people, no matter their background, no matter their religious background, their cultural or ethnic heritage, God's good news is for everyone. And oftentimes Christians have seen the worship of the Magi as a fulfillment of this psalm, of Psalm 72, especially as we saw in verses 8 through 11, where it says, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. Now, the Magi aren't necessarily kings as we would think of kings. Our word for magic comes from Magi, actually, same word. And these guys were probably more associated with like pagan religions, maybe even Zoroastrianism or something like that. And these guys were people who practiced astrology, dream interpretation, the study of sacred writings of all sorts and kinds, whether that be Jewish or or otherwise, and the pursuit of wisdom and of magic. And so they, they followed the cosmos, they followed what was happening in the sky, and then they knew what the sacred texts said about the meaning of what was in the sky. But today, I don't want to focus our attention so much on the magi as the object of the magi's worship, and that is the Messiah. He's the idealized king that we see in Psalm 72. And I want to briefly just look at a few things that we see in this psalm and then follow it up with just how we should respond to it, if you guys will come with me here. Let's begin looking at the psalm itself. The psalm begins and ends with an attribution and a description. You might remember that. At the beginning it said, of Solomon. And then at the very end it said, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And so before this psalm is anything else, it's the prayer of King Solomon, the son of David and the grandson of Jesse. 
And I don't know about you, but I think this prayer is beautiful. That's, that's what I kept thinking as it was being read, and, and Kirsten did such an incredible job of reading it, of course, which helped. But, but as I'm, I'm hearing this psalm be read, I'm thinking, man, this is beautiful. This is what we all want. This is what we all need. It's what we wish our political candidates could do for us. Amen? It, 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 this prayer is a request for the king's reign because the world is so desperate for someone who would actually rule like God rules. And so this psalm is turning that need into a prayer. It's asking that the king would rule with justice and with righteousness. Did you notice that at the beginning of the psalm in verses 1 and 2? It had that pairing of those words. And if you've read your Bible, you might have noticed that those words, especially in the Old Testament, are paired together often. That This isn't the only occurrence of justice and righteousness. And if you're like me, you wonder, why is that? Why are those two words used together so frequently? I had to go find out. And uh, Peter Gentry is an Old Testament scholar, and he explains this really well for us. Here's what he says. According to Hebrew poetry, which is based upon placing lines in parallel pairs, that's called parallelism, justice is matched in the first line by righteousness in the second. Normally in prose, when the words justice and righteousness are joined together, they form a single concept or idea best expressed in English by the term social justice. Okay, so many people in our culture today are tossing out the word social justice, and and in fact, it's being used in so many different ways that it might mean something different to every person in this room and every person out on the street. And so what we have to note is that what this is talking about is not just social justice in a generic sense or in a worldly sense or in in the way that you hear about it on the news or, or on social media or whatever. Social justice in the way that it's being portrayed here is godly social justice. This is what this is biblical social justice, Christian social justice. It's true social justice. And it's not made up by people's definitions. But did you notice in the psalm that it's actually God's justice and righteousness? It's both from him and reflective of him. God is truly righteous. He always does what is right. God is truly just. He always uh, judges rightly. He rightly gives out rewards and punishments. And so social justice from a Christian perspective is acting in accordance with God's character and His commands. Especially if you want to think of it very simply, it's loving our neighbors, right? As Jesus teaches us. The Bible teaches us that society as a whole has a moral obligation to care for those who are less fortunate, particularly those who are under the hand of oppression. And this psalm describes that. And so Christian social justice is is hating things like human trafficking and exploitation. It's fighting against those sorts of things anywhere that they exist both on an individual and on a societal level. But it's not just caring for those who are under oppression. It's also having pity on the weak and the poor, as verse 13 said, which could be 
those who are financially lacking. It could be those who are lacking power, whether that be physical power or spiritual power. Sorry, social power. So why does the Bible emphasize these kinds of things? Why does the Bible emphasize that we care for the sojourner and the widow and the orphan? The answer is because it reflects the heart of God. It reflects the heart of God. Now today in our society, widows aren't always vulnerable, uh, not in the same way that they would have been in ancient times. In ancient times, they were the most likely candidates for exploitation. And God's heart is one of pity, or that's the word that's used in the psalm, but you might think of that as compassion. God's heart is one of compassion toward those who are susceptible to this kind of mistreatment. In our culture, this might be those who are elderly, those who are disabled, those who are in lower social classes who lack opportunities that upper class people enjoy every day. This might be refugees or immigrants. And even as I'm describing all these things, you might be like, you're preaching to the choir, man. I already, I'm already on board with this. <laughs> and, and I would say as a church, I've been really encouraged that we are a church who has a heart of compassion. We're not perfect. We don't perfectly do that. I know we all have ways in which God is working on us and our hearts. But I could see how this could feel like I'm preaching the choir. You might be saying, well, yeah, of course we should show compassion to the poor and to the weak and, and to the needy. But you need to understand how revolutionary this really is. We live in this society that's been so shaped by Christianity that we often take this for granted. It wasn't always this way. People, it wasn't assumed that you should care for the poor and the weak and needy. And in fact, much of the world is still dominated by the mistreatment of the most vulnerable citizens in each country. And, and it, we're not immune to this in the United States either. Even Christians, people who claim to be Christians, don't always view things this way or, or act in compassionate ways toward others. The Christian ethic is that all human beings have inherent value because they belong to God and they've been made in His image. And in this, in some ways, it was then and in some ways still a revolutionary concept. But the problem when Psalm 72 is written is that this kind of viewing of human beings and this kind of treatment of them was limited only to Israel where God's justice and righteousness reigned. And so this psalm was looking forward to the day of the Messiah where that justice and righteousness would be manifest all across the globe. And when the Messiah's righteousness and justice abounds, the way that the psalm talks about it is that it results in peace. Or as we talked about even just a few weeks ago, this Hebrew word shalom, you guys remember that. We see it explicitly in verses 3 and 7, but this is really the whole psalm is describing shalom. And the point is, is that you can't have true peace, you can't have true prosperity unless you have justice and righteousness, God's justice and righteousness, or His social justice. And these two things, His justice and His righteousness, they're like the soil 
or the climate in which peace flourishes, in which prosperity comes from. Many people today, they want peace, but they don't want it God's way. Many people today, they they want prosperity, but they don't want it God's way. And God's way is when the world operates according to His character and His commands, to the degree that things naturally begin to thrive. That's the way that this psalm is describing these things working. And that's what we should want, to live in accordance with God's character and His commands so that shalom just kind of naturally happens. That's why this psalm has so many instances of pictures of abundance. Did you notice that? Things like the mountains and the hills in verse 3, they were prospering. Righteous people flourishing in verse 7. Grain and fruit growing in verse 16. People even blossoming, it said. I I love that language in verse 16. That means they're they're multiplying, they're they're thriving, they're having more children, and and, and they're, they're, they're flourishing. But also then in verse 6, we saw that the grass is freshly mowed. Now, if you're from the Pacific Northwest, grass is those little shoots that grow up between the weeds and the moss. You might not be familiar with it. I don't know. Um, but, but, but all these amazing things happen when the world has fallen under the reign of the Messiah. And that is what this psalm is meant to make us want. It's meant to make us desire that. So how should we respond? What should our response to this psalm be? I'm going to give you four things that I think this psalm is, is calling us to respond with. The first one is worship the king. Like the kings uh, that are mentioned in the psalm, like the wise men that we heard about earlier, devote yourself to him. Love him. Live For Him, live for the King. That means worship Him by gathering together with God's people like we do here on Sundays. Worship Him on your own, in your your own time, as you worship Him in your daily life. Worship Him in community and in relationship with God's people. Worship the King. Secondly, pray for the kingdom. As we saw, this psalm is a prayer. And so we want to join with the psalm and, and pray along with Solomon that God's justice and righteousness would abound on earth, that all people and, and all creation would flourish. We want to pray that all kings, and we don't really have a ton of kings around today, so maybe all those who are in power would fall down before Jesus the King and serve Him and worship Him, that this, this psalm, pray that this psalm would come to fruition more and more, like in verse 15. Pray that Jesus' name and His fame would endure forever, like in verse 19. Pray that the whole earth would be filled with His glory. Don't you want that? Amen? Sorry, I'm asking you guys to come back at me here. Yes, amen? Amen. Okay, there we go. Number three, love what the King loves. I think this psalm is calling us to love what the King loves, to love people, and and genuinely love people, not just act like it, but have a heart of love toward others. And and if you do, you'll actually have a, a heart of compassion toward others. 
If you're struggling to have compassion towards someone else, it's because you're struggling to love that person, to actually see them as God sees them. I think compassion is something that's in short supply in our society. I think so often we kind of expect people to um, take care of themselves. We live in a society that that sort of thinks, well, if that person can't do that for themselves, then I'm going to write them off, or that's their problem. And if we have hearts that are lacking in compassion, it's because we're lacking in love. But we should love what the king loves. We should love justice and righteousness. And when we do, that leads to that flourishing, that shalom that the psalm describes. And so we should not just love what the king loves, but number four, we should do what the king does. We should do what the king does. We should do this Christian social justice. We shouldn't just ask the king to do it. We shouldn't just pray and, and ask Jesus to, to have his kingdom come and his will to be done. He's actually granted us the responsibility to participate with him. And so we've got to change our priorities to align them with him, to do what the king does. That means that we spend our time differently. We actually spend our time and seek out opportunities to help the poor, the weak, the needy. It means that we invest our money differently, that we seek out opportunities to help the poor, the weak, the needy. It's how we operate as a community. It's like even like how Fraser came up and shared with us this, this opportunity that we've had and that we will have to serve those who are less fortunate than us in the Dominican Republic. These are expressions of doing what the king does. But you see, this also means that we have to be consistent, that we can't live hypocritically uh, and say that we love people and that we're for Christian social justice and then do another thing. And I think that this is, is really easy for us to do in our society I'll give you a few examples. Uh, we, we need to be mindful not just of being against oppression and exploitation of human beings, but we live in a capitalist society. We live in a consumerist society, and so we vote with our wallet. Are we supporting things that actually require human trafficking or the degradation of human life or the environment? We have to be mindful of these things cognizant in order to do what the king does? Are we using tools that actually dismantle shalom? And I think this is so easy for us to do when it involves technology and entertainment and these kinds of things. The way that we utilize social media or choose not to, are we mindful of how that's either helping us and other people to thrive or it's making those things worse. Things like video games and entertainment and tech, these are all ways that we have to holistically uphold human flourishing. So we have to be mindful of the ways that they can affect that. I think probably the most potent example of this is pornography. So often Christians say, yes, I'm all about uh, stopping human trafficking and exploitation, and yet they still consume pornography, which actually supports those things. And so we have to be consistent and not hypocritical to do what the king does. And I want to look at now a few things before we close in what prevents us from responding in this way. I think the first one is just apathy. It's apathy. 
We think things like Jesus isn't physically here. Jesus is king, yeah, I guess in an intellectual way or in a spiritual sense, but he's not actually ruling and reigning right now, is he? And so we think, oh, I can't do anything. I might as well not even try. These problems that the world has, they're just too great, too big. But as we've seen, Jesus has given us a clear call to participate with him in his kingdom. And so apathy won't do. Second, polarization. I think we've all been uh, hearing lots and lots about polarization, haven't we? In the last number of years especially, our culture has been getting increasingly polarized. And you know, being active both socially and politically uh, in our culture is good. As citizens of the king, it's good for us to be active in our, in our culture. Uh, but it, activism is also kind of this new religion in America. And so people have taken some of these values and they've kind of applied them to, I'm going to go do all of these things now as sort of my own uh, act of worship to, to the, these values that I'm propping up rather than to the king and to, to Jesus. And, and even as Christians, we can get polarized uh, because we all have different views of how to achieve the king's values, how to do what the king does. And as people, we know we're already inclined sinfully to take sides and to, and to see ourselves as separated from other people and see other people as the problem in our society. It's, it's that group. It's, it's the, the progressives or the conservatives. It's, it's the other political party. They're the problem. They need to get their act together. And then what obviously makes this worse is that our news feeds and our Google searches are all kind of geared to give us what we want, to, to give us more of our homogenous content, of our views, the things that we like, to multiply what we already believe. It actually makes us even more polarized from those who view things differently than we do. And so we have to be wise we can't just give in to polarization. We must be wise and discerning and seek to understand those who are different than us. Another thing that prevents us in responding uh, with Christian social justice is a more extreme form of polarization. Polarization taken to its logical conclusion is really just idolatry. It's, it's like political and social idolatry. It's, it's taking our views and demonizing people who are on the other side of them, while also placing our ultimate hope and our trust in our political system, our social system, or the leaders who inhabit those worlds, when in reality, those people, those systems are never going to save us. If it isn't Jesus, it's not our Savior. If it isn't Jesus, it isn't our God. If it isn't Jesus, these systems and these people, they're not worthy of our worship or our hope or our trust. And so we can't get lost in political and social idolatry. We also, though, can't get lost in the, in the fear cycle. I think fear is another thing that prevents us from living in the ways that this psalm calls us to. Fear is actually the flip side to idolatry. It's not necessarily so much placing all of our hope and our trust in this 
system, it's fearing that it will be taken and, and, and uh, that it'll be lost. So it's not just I'm putting all my hope and trust in this leader it's, I'm, or this system. I'm afraid that that is going to be taken away from me. It's fearing that it will be removed from power. There's a common problem among Christians today because we've lost a lot of social and political power in America and in the West in general, and the fear is that we'll lose everything that we've worked for. Now, seeking to maintain social and political power isn't necessarily wrong in and of itself, but it shouldn't be our primary aim. It shouldn't be more important than loving what the king loves and doing what the king does. Our goal is not social and political power. And the fact is, is that Jesus promised us it wouldn't, he never promised us it would be easy to follow him in this world, that his kingdom is not of this world. And so the privileges that we've enjoyed as Christians over the past few centuries are great. Praise God for them. But God doesn't promise us that we will always have those privileges. And even if it gets harder for us as Christians, we're a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Amen? We're a part of a kingdom that cannot be taken away from us. And Jesus, in the meantime, until He returns, He'll give us everything that we need to endure for His glory. We don't need to be afraid. Some of you guys are like, yeah, those weak, fearful people. <laughs> I, I'm not like them. I, I like power. And I think this is actually the last one this, that I'm going to highlight anyway. This is the, the last one that I see as a barrier to us responding to the way that the psalm is inviting us to, and that is power playing. We make the mistake of the world. We believe that the human endeavor is all about gaining power. And when, this, and when we get this wrong, when we actually believe that, we redefine justice. We actually redefine justice and we base it on Robin Hood rather than God's character and his word. We think that justice is merely a redistribution of power and resources. But the Bible doesn't present power, uh, people doesn't view power, sorry, doesn't view people who have power and resources uh, as necessarily negative. It, it doesn't view these things from an egalitarian perspective. Rather, the Bible expects those who have power and resources to be responsible and change how that power is used, to use it for the glory of God and for the kingdom of God. It teaches that it's actually us using the power that God has bestowed on us to bless others, to give to others. So it's in a sense, it's voluntarily giving our power and our resources away in order to multiply the blessing of God, to give it to others. So if all of these things are standing in the way, if all of these things are barriers, what's the solution? Well, I want to come back to the beginning. Today is Epiphany Sunday, right? We said that earlier. And a pastor named Paul Andrew, he says that an epiphany is that moment in the story when a character achieves a realization, an awareness, or a knowledge of something after which events are seen through this prism. And friends, what I want us to take away from this today is that Jesus is 
that prism. Jesus is our King who has manifested Himself, who has revealed Himself to us. And so we don't have to settle for apathy, for polarization, for idolatry, for fear or power playing. We get to fall under the reign of our benevolent King, of our gracious King Jesus, the King of the whole world. Through this psalm, we see that Jesus is the true and better Solomon, who fulfills all of our social and political hopes and needs and desires. Jesus is the true and better Solomon, who rules with perfect justice and righteousness. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, who causes everything around Him to flourish. He doesn't just defend the cause of the poor. Jesus comes, He leaves infinite power and riches and glory And he comes and becomes poor. He doesn't just defend the cause of the oppressed. Jesus willingly suffers as one who is oppressed. Why? So that he could die in our place for our sins. So that he could defeat and win a victory over all evil. And so that he could show us what his kingdom is truly like. And now he invites us to live as he did. And to be ministers of his work until he returns. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for sending us Jesus, for giving us a king who actually does what this psalm describes, who actually rules with justice and righteousness. And we thank you, Jesus, that, that you didn't just, become, that you didn't just uh, stand up for the poor or give to the poor, but you became poor, that you don't just defend the cause of those who are oppressed, you became oppressed. And that, Jesus, you have identified with us in every way, yet without sin. Jesus, we come to you now as our great King, and we want to worship you. We want to pray to you. We want to love what you loved, what you love. We want to do what you do. And we confess that there's so much that's standing in the way of that. And so, Jesus, would you help us now, transform us now, to make us into the people that you have called us to be. And we ask it in your name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.